This is exactly right. So I think if you suspect your friend's going through infertility, you can say, you know, I'm here for you if you want to talk about it. And you can also say, do you want to talk about it? And they could say no. Or if you know they're going through something, you can just say, I'm here for you. Do you want me to ask you about it? Or do you want to just bring it up when you want to bring it up? Because people are different. Welcome to the Parent Footprint Podcast with Dr. Dan. I am your host, Dr. Dan, and let me tell you about our mission at Parent Footprint. That is to make the world a more loving and compassionate place, one parent and one child at a time. We believe the key to raising happy, healthy, and engaged kids is for us parents to seek the same in our own life, happiness, health, and engagement. We also believe that awareness is the foundation for your vision of successful parenting. And with increased awareness and intention, we can be purposeful about leaving a healthy footprint on our children. Today's show is all about being completely purposeful about your child and having children. The title of the show is The Trying Game. Get through fertility treatment and get pregnant without losing your mind with our esteemed guest and author, Amy Klein. Amy, you might have read Amy's New York Times fertility diary following her real and harrowing four-year journey to have a baby after 10 doctors in three countries with nine rounds of IVF and four miscarriages. Amy's health and science journalism background helps her bring to light the ups and downs of trying, which she has encapsulated in her brand new book, the title of the show, The Trying Game. And Amy lives in New York City with her husband and daughter. She loves the water and misses living in the beach in Venice, California. However, she has sold her surfboard. Amy, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Dr. Dan. So, um, we were talking about uh, there's a big difference between New York and uh, the West Coast these days with what we're all living with. And we're glad you are safe and healthy. Yes, I'm safe and healthy, but being in New York is the constant worry that you're not. Yeah, I I understand. Um, And since you brought up worrying, uh, you have a lot to tell us about quite a process for any of us. You know, most of us know someone who has gone through some sort of process and difficulty getting pregnant. And while there are all sorts of new methods out there, um, as you will attest and tell us, um, it there is no foolproof method. And boy, is it a psychological, emotional, just journey at every level of the game. Yeah, I mean, my 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 dark joke is, oh my God, what's worse than infertility is infertility during a pandemic. Um, <laughs> that good and dark. Yes, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's really rough, and you know, whether you're going through treatment and you're doing IUI or IVF, or even if you're just, you know, it takes you a year to get pregnant at home. Um, it sounds nice in retrospect after you had your child, you're like, oh yeah, it took me a year to get pregnant, but a year is like 12 months and that's every 12 months. It's two weeks of wondering if you're pregnant or not. So that's a lot of worrying and that's a lot of panic, you know, even before you start treatment, you know, they recommend if you're under 35 to wait a year before seeing a specialist. And if you're over 35 to wait six months, I don't necessarily agree with those recommendations. But, um, you know, because I believe that you should, you know, make that time as short as possible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, because obviously you don't want to spend any more money than you have to, but you also have to take into amount of time, the emotional time spent worrying and trying and, you know, like even just, you know, one month that you're not pregnant. Okay. It's a little disappointing, but then the next month you try and then you have to wait two weeks and then you have to wait again. And it, it really takes a toll on you emotionally. So, you know, I always say I can't get people pregnant, but I just want them to get there faster. Mm-hmm. Tell, take us back to 
your journey and and I mean there's so much learning and suffering along the way. I mean, going to the literally the ends of different parts of the globe and the earth to um, to to have your child, and all the losses along the way, the grief, you know, the suffering, and we'll talk about and you know the impact on marriage. I mean, so tell us about your journey. Um, yeah, so I started. Um, I started. I got pregnant right away after I got married at forty-one. And then I lost that pregnancy and, um, and it wasn't like, it felt like a very late period because I, I didn't even make it to the doctor and she was like, yep, you were pregnant. Just try again. So we took off a month to go on our honeymoon and then we tried again and we got pregnant right away again. So it seemed like it was going to be a happy ending story, right? No book, no column in the New York times, no nothing. Mm-hmm. And um, then I lost that pre- I lost that baby at ten weeks, and that's when I started hitting the fertility circuit. And then I started, you know, IUI, which I call the turkey baster. Mm-hmm. And we started IVF, and I got pregnant again with IVF, and I lost that again. Um, so it's just this weird, you know. I always say this: the science is changes. It changes as I wrote my book; it was changing. Mm-hmm. Um. You know, even some things that I was thinking about five years ago are not necessarily the same, but the emotional journey is still the same. It's like you think it's going to be easy. You think it's going to be um, inexpensive. And then, you know, you think the hard part is going to come with the parents and you spend all this time deciding if you want to be a parent and then you think it should be easy, right? And then it's not easy. And then you're like, oh, shoot, am I going to have fertility issues? What does that mean? Do I have to learn the whole you know, sometimes it feels like there's this expectation to know everything about fertility right from the start. And then you have like this emotional journey of just regret. Oh my God, I should have started trying earlier. I shouldn't have waited so long. Should have, would have, could have, I should have married that other guy. Um, And then you start, you know, the real bare bones of fertility, like paying for treatment and then things don't work out. I mean, that's, like, despite my dark joke of the pandemic, it's like fertility is just an exercise and things being out of your control and not working out the way you planned and on your timeline. And, um, you know, the pandemic is a horrible thing, but someone told me, she said, oh, it really, now it really feels like God doesn't want me to have a baby. Mm. So um, then we moved to Israel for um, some more IVF with genetic testing because it was free because we're citizens. And um, that didn't work either. And we finally moved on to donor eggs. And that didn't work either because I had a special repeat miscarriage condition that was only treatable by a special repeat miscarriage doctor. And so after I did his treatment, after, you know, four years, I finally, um, my fifth pregnancy was my daughter almost five years ago. So... I'm pausing. <laughs> I mean, that, that condensed story I know is, um, there's a lot. Oh, in sorry. That. I didn't want to, I don't know how long yeah. to go on for it. Yeah. yeah, no, no. I mean, there's just so much in your story uh, on this path. And um, what, so now, given all of the science and given what you know from your experience, what do you recommend, like, what is the latest thinking on fertility and aging? So, you know, obviously it's usually better to start younger and it's usually better if you're under 35, but there are plenty of people over 35 and there are plenty of people over 40 who get pregnant with their first kid because you only count your first kid. So there are plenty of people who have great fertility. You can be 40 with the fertility of a 30 year old and you can also be 30 with the fertility of a 40 year old. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's really individual. It depends on your genetics. It depends on your lifestyle. My thinking, my recommendation after everything is just how little we women know about our bodies and our reproduction system. We learn only about how not to get pregnant. And that's basically it. And when our period comes. We don't know much more than that. And the stories that I've told just reinforces that. Like someone who's much older, who never had kids, who I'm working with, 
she told me that when she was in high school, she just used to have to take a week off because of the pain of her period. And she didn't learn until she started trying many, many, many years later that she had endometriosis. Because people kept telling her, oh, yeah, it's normal to have pain during your period. I can't tell you how many women I meet in their 30s who's, or late 30s who are like, oh, yeah, you know, I don't get my period at all. Or I get it every other month. Or I have so much pain. Or, yeah, I visited a gynecologist in my 20s and she said I had a fibroid, but I don't have to worry about it. Um, so, like, maybe those things are changing and that would be amazing if they were. But I feel like every woman in their 20s should know and we should talk about what what it means to have a healthy reproductive, reproductive system, whether you're planning on having children or not. You know, do you have painful periods? Do you skip your periods? Are they unusually heavy? Um, did your mother have like a million miscarriages? Uh, what's your family history? You know, did your grandmother have kids until she was 48? I mean, those none of those things are guaranteed, but like I wish that first stop, I wish like everyone upon graduating college, you know, or maybe like a college course would be like all you need to know, both for men and women about your body, not only how not to get pregnant, but like, it's super shocking when you find out, oh, you're, I can only get pregnant probably like four to five days a month. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I remember a time I was so freaked out because um, I thought I was pregnant, but it was like two days after my period. So it was super unlikely, but I just didn't know. I didn't really know that, you know? Mm-hmm. So I don't know if it's because of the puritan culture we live in. I don't know if it's, you know, gynecologists are just focused on offering birth control, but like, I wish, I don't want people to get to their first fertility appointment and have to learn the whole of reproductive, you know, reproduction at once. And I just want, you know, I want us all, we're all empowered people. We know so much about so many things. I want us to just know about, okay, this is the way the body works. This is when you can get sex. You can have, you can, this is when you, this is your conception window when you can get pregnant. Um, and you know, this is how eggs work and aging, you know, there's a big disservice in society when, you know, when you see all these celebrities getting pregnant at 50 or having babies at 48, their first kid. Right. Right. Um, and I get it. And I've written about it. Like I get why they're not public about their journey, whether they use a surrogate or they use, um, not their eggs, they use donor eggs. It's their business, but People just think, oh, I'll just do do IVF and I'll get pregnant. Like, they just think it's this trick. And then they get there and they're like, holy mother of God, this is not, this is expensive. It hardly works on the first time. I might not work with my own eggs, you know, so it's a lot of shock that people go through. So I want, I really just want people to be on top of their um, fertility. Well, and that's why you you said, I mean, one of the things you said about your book is you wrote a book that you wish you had. And as you're talking, I'm saying not only for people who were are on the road of struggling with infertility, but it sounds like this is for high school and college. Like this is this is this is essential health sex education, reproductive. I mean, if education. I could go into a college and do a course, then I would. Yeah, you know, with the reproductive and all. I don't want to scare people, and people always ask me, like, you know, um, what do I think of egg freezing? And part A of what I think of egg freezing is what I just told you is like, I don't care if you ultimately freeze your eggs or don't freeze your eggs. That's a personal decision based on a lot of things like cost, um, who's paying, right? Who's paying for it? Um, how much you want to have kids, um, what are the success rates, There's a, you know, what are your personal um, hormonal levels, is it worth it? So there's a lot of cost, but before you even get to egg freezing, like, I want you to have all the information you need before you decide to freeze your eggs. I want you to know, you know, I want you to go at 32 to your doctor and say, give me the, give me my hormonal assay for fertility and I want you to have that number like, oh my God, your eggs are declining rapidly. So then you can make that decision. But I want you to understand, you know, I think most people and myself included and the technology wasn't there, but most people just kind of like, oh, I'm not sure if I want to have kids or I want to have kids one day. So I'm not going to even think about it. 
Like get those numbers, just like you would get your blood pressure numbers. You get your weight. You know your weight. You know every woman knows her weight, and she can name the year. If you tell her a year, she can tell you her weight. You know. Yeah. So, so how do you so how do you get that number for those nov those novice people like me out there? How do you, you go, go get to your, your gynecologist and you say I'd like a I'd like a hormonal panel for my I'd like my AMH and FSH and you know I, I'd like you to do a egg count. And she might tell you what day to come back. She might poo-poo you. If she poo-poos you and says you're young, you might want to find another gynecologist. But because mm-hmm. um, I know people who have stored it. And there's also like at-home testing. There are companies like Kind's Body that will do the testing for you. So you can just ask your gynecologist, say, I'm interested in learning more about my fertility, how it works. And I'd really like an examination, an intrauterine uh, examination to make sure that everything's fine inside. Um, and I want to know my hormonal levels. Hmm. And then once you find out, again, I just want to go with this because this is the basic information that you need to be teaching in um, high school and colleges. So what should people do when they get that? Like, what's the mindset based on the, the number they get? Well, most people are going to be fine, and but then they'll get the education like, okay, your AMH is three point is is three, and that's exactly where you should be at your age. You know, maybe have it checked. You're thirty. Maybe have it checked at thirty three or thirty four. Um, you don't have any uter- You don't have any. You don't have a split uterine. You don't have a um, any fibroids. You don't look like you have endometriosis. I mean, I think you know. There's um. I think one in seven women or something have endometriosis and it takes like seven years for this. And that's where the uterine lining, there's something wrong with it. It's growing abnormally mm-hmm. and it can cause very heavy bleeding and painful periods. And most people don't even think to even bring that up with their gynecologist. Like, Oh my God, my period is crazy. Or Oh my God, my period is not coming. Like know your menstrual cycle, know how it works. Then, you know, you'll be ahead of the game when it comes to trying. Like if you, only have a 21 day menstrual cycle, there might be something wrong and you might want to work on that to fix it. So it's like if you were preparing for a marathon, it's just, I would just sit down with my gynecologist and say, I want a full body workup. I don't know if I want to have kids, but I just want to make sure that everything's working before, you know, so I'd rather deal with anything at 30 than at 40. Nice. Okay. And then you can say, tell me about the pros and after they get the number back, right? Because she can mm-hmm. say, tell me the pros and cons of egg freezing. And then once you have that number, like your number, let's say your AMH is actually very low um, and you're only 30, she might say, you know what? Uh, if you want to have kids, I'd either freeze eggs or maybe start thinking about having that kid right now. But like if you don't have those numbers and they're just going on crazy you know, averages and you might be the outlier and you don't want to be the outlier. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, um, so I've just finished this book that my wife had given me a long time ago and I finally got to it. It's called, uh, do fathers matter? And this is by written by, you might've heard of this by a science journalism like yourself. And he gets very scientific. And what made me think of it is you basically said, you know, maybe I should have married a different guy and the whole all of the science, so much science is on, on moms and with right. unfortunately a lot of mom, you know, over, over responsibility on moms. And what I was educated about in this book was how much the age of the father and the father's genetics, how much that goes into everything we're talking about when it comes to having a baby, making a baby, what kind of baby and the developmental trajectory. So I'm wondering, do you do you do you have any thoughts about that as well? Because obviously the moms are the ones that get all of this attention when things aren't working out a lot of the times. Yeah, so I do have a whole chapter on male factor infertility. Um and you know, if you don't have any sperm, obviously, um that's gonna matter. Um, in the book, in the chapter on um, male factor infertility, a specialist in San Francisco, a urologist, um, says that he thinks it's like so wildly underdiagnosed. Um, 
because he views fertility doctors, they're just going to bypass the bad sperm. Hmm. Um, so this, I also, a man's age matters, but not, it doesn't matter as much as the woman's, you know, and okay. there are studies mm-hmm. that show an increase in autism and schizophrenia in right. older fathers, but that is comparing, that might be comparing a 45 year old sperm to a 25 year old sperm. Mm-hmm. And those are not significant. I mean, those are statistically significant numbers, but they're not, you know, you could say it's like a 50% increase between, I'm just, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but you could say it's a 50% increase between a 50 year old father and a 25 year old father. But that could mean only like an extra thousand people. If you know the numbers wise, it's not a crazy amount of numbers. And I don't, I didn't read this book and I don't know what science this guy is showing. There is an increase in a father's age to proclivities to some disorders like autism and schizophrenia. And also more significantly time to conception. Mm, So how long it takes you to get pregnant. An older, older sperm will have, take longer to get um to get pregnant but it still does fall on the woman so if you have an older man and an older woman that double whammy is not great if you have an older man and a 20 year old woman we've seen them perfectly having lots of kids you know what i mean and people magazine all the time yes exactly okay and then also yeah. um the truth is that um the father Sometimes you go to a fertility clinic and they say your sperm is fine. And I don't know if that means your sperm is just, in fact, good enough for a fertility treatment. Like, we're just going to find that one little guy and stick him in there. Or mm-hmm. is it really, like, excellent? Mm-hmm. Got it. But when, when, when you have male factor infertility, a lot of times the, treat, the, the burden anyway falls on the woman. Unless, you like, some men have to do testicular surgery to extract sperm. Um, but they often, the woman still, even if she has nothing wrong with her, she's going to have to go through fertility treatment. But in answering your question, a man should also know his reproductive history. Right. Man should know if his father had trouble conceiving, um, you uh, you know, if he had, if he had any trouble, if he had any mumps, I have a checklist in there. If he had mumps as a child, if he had cancer treatment. These things, a man should know about his fertility too, and a man should know how a woman's body works. So that college course is not only for women, it's for men and women. Exactly. And as you said, it seems like the burden always falls on um, women and mothers anyways. So we need to to lighten the load where we can and share some of the responsibility here. Um, What, what, um, what would you say, what is, what is your feeling about life after infertility and miscarriage how does that does that how does that from your perspective impact mothering parenting well you know it's like i kind of said like oh you know when you run a marathon you prepare for the marathon and then you train for it you give up alcohol at least i did and you know you go to sleep early and then you run the marathon and it's over and then you celebrate but like you go through this long journey of infertility, then you have the baby and it's not over. Everything's just beginning. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, um, I, I say, you know, and I say, Oh, like people say, Oh, there's a silver lining to infertility. You're so appreciative of your daughter. And I say, no, you know, I, I would have loved to have skipped those four years. I would have loved to have, just gotten pregnant, my first or second pregnancy, had the baby and gone into it with fresh eyes. I mean, we had four years of not only financial trouble, but emotional trouble and fighting and learning about each other. And some couples don't make it and some couples do, but I think, I mean, I'm sure my husband and I would have learned about our coping styles through parenthood anyway, but you're starting off I think a little bit of a disadvantage because you have so much of that wear and tear. It's like starting parenting with a new car, you know, with an old car rather than a new car. Mm-hmm. It's like starting parenting with an old car rather than a new car. Right. So it's, 
not a lot of silver lining. It's really, it's really hard. And there's a ton of shrapnel. And um, you get out on the other side and you're exhausted and forlorn and traumatized. I'm, ha- I'm happy and excited, but also traumatized. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, those movies scene, it's so funny when you see in the movies, the montage, oh, we got your positive pregnancy test. Then next you're rubbing your belly. Then you're in the hospital with this beautiful bundle. I mean, that's not how real pregnancy works in any case. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe that's how it works from the man director's eyes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. Nice and clean and beautiful. So what, what do you, re- I mean, is, is there recovery? Yeah, I mean, how is the recovery process? If we can talk about recovery that way. I think, you know, along with all those bad things, there is definitely um, a sense of gratitude, like a constant gratitude. You know, even like now during this pandemic when it's decibel, you know, glass breaking decibel around here. Sometimes you got to be like, oh my God, I'm so happy that I'm quarantined with my daughter than the opposite. So there's a lot of gratitude and also maybe some of the things of early motherhood that maybe some young mothers like, Oh my God, how do I leave the house? There's so much stuff. I can't deal with no sleep. I mean, that's like you're suffused with so much gratitude that you're not, you might not have the same worries as other first time mothers. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of what I talk about in the last chapter, which is IVF after loss and infertility, is like, okay, you might not be able to enjoy your pregnancy the way other people have because that has been robbed from you because you're so nervous the whole time. And you might not, you might have some feelings after. There's no, there's no study that showed an increase in postpartum depression after infertility. Mm-hmm. But I think that most of us are scarred, whether it's from pregnancy loss or infertility. Um, and I mean, you know, the main advice in my book is like, if I wanted to sum it up in a word is like, accept all your feelings. Like this is a judgment free zone. Like, don't tell me to be happy during pregnancy. Don't tell me at least blah, blah, blah. At least, you know, you finally got pregnant or at least, you know, all feelings are okay. And maybe sometimes, you know, you'll be jealous, even if you have a baby of like that person who got pregnant so naturally or Maybe, you know, I'll be jealous because I didn't get to use my own eggs. Feelings are just feelings. And, like, I think the sooner that you, like, just accept that things are not like they look on Instagram or social media and they're not black and white, you know. And it's the same thing with parenting. You know, on the one hand, you have all those wonderful parenting montages. And on the other hand, you have the people who are, like, bitching about it 24-7. And it's kind of somewhere in between. It's great and it's horrible. Right. And I like, accept all your feelings, everyone listening. Accept all your feelings. I mean, that, that is, that's very wise. And um, no doubt, a lot of emotions are put on, um, on people in these situations. Or aren't you happy? It's finally here. Why are you sad? And, you know, frankly, that sounds like a, a bunch of uh, BS as, as we talk about this. No, not knowing what someone has gone through to get to that point and knowing that it's still a, it's still a road from there on out. And I'm wondering, Amy, you know, you talked about the stress on marriage. And that's something that I think a lot of people need to understand as um, as normal in these circumstances. Uh, and yes, some people don't make it. What what did you learn, and what do you recommend? Um, I think you know it's this kind of fast forward on who your partner is that you might not learn until much later. You might not learn until you have the baby, whenever that is. Like in a regular, in a quote-unquote fertile couple, they might learn things later on, like um, how you deal with um, bad things happening to you. And I think it's important, whether it's during infertility or um, early parenting, is kind of to recognize, A, what your expectations are, and B, who your partner is. And, you know, I've spoken to a lot of women who are like, he doesn't want to, you know, he's totally all in, he'll go for the infertility. He doesn't want to talk about like finding the doctor or my egg count or, you know, how many embryos or which doctor we should go to. He just wants me to do it and he'll just, you know, 
he wants to support me, but he doesn't like he's traveling around the world and he just can't deal with this right now. And sometimes I say, you know what, your partner is not always your partner in this. Like, find a fertility best friend, find someone you know you could hire a consultant who helps you with the emotional journey and um, the physical, you know, physical journey. You know, like if you ask me right now, oh. You know, December 2014, what IVF cycle were you up to? How many eggs you got? I would be able to tell you that as well. Mm-hmm. My husband would not. And I had some friends. I mean, ironically, like my gay best friend in L.A. who is never having children, is not interested in parenting. He was kind of my point person, which is funny, but like I could just be like crying. Oh, my God, one of my tubes is blocked. And he could just be there and just be like, oh, that sucks. And he didn't have any judgment because he didn't be like, oh, you should have started 10 years earlier. Like, he didn't care. He just wanted me to be happy. Mm-hmm. Um, so sometimes the support you need is not always from your partner. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you have to ask your partner for what you need. You know, like, I really need you to come with me to every appointment, even though it seems dumb to you. Um, I really need I- you to look at this research. I think that's important. I think that's really important. I can just um, think back on when we were having our, especially our first child, and there were the stacks of books next to my wife's bed, and there were things that I was, um, I think, in hindsight, was supposed to be reading, but I couldn't wrap my mind around being at the place of reading about right. development and such, and. And again, it wasn't that I wasn't an involved person or a caring person. It was that I just wasn't there. And I didn't find out later that it was really important to her for me to read to show that I was like, she could see I was involved as much as she felt. Um, And we just figured that out later. But that's just making me think in this much more acute situation, how important it is to tell partners what you need because as uh, you people know um, men when we're talking about men here um, are not always keenly aware and it's not just with men um, we can't read other people's minds right even the best female partners can't read our partner's mind so I just think it's so important it sounds so simple but rather than waiting for someone to kind of get the hint the, in these stressful circumstances, I just think it's such an important factor. What you're saying is say what you need. Now, again, if they don't you do know, it after that, we, yeah. got, we, got, we got something else going on. Well, if your wife would have said to you, you know, and she said, read these books, and like, you really are not going to read these books, right? Like, you said you're going, I mean, there was that, remember, I don't know if you yep. Yep. me, but yep. knocked up with Seth Rogen. He had, like, she finds all the oh. books in the back. Totally, totally. So that's what I also mean about learning who your partner is. And maybe like my husband would be like, I'm not going to read the book. Can you just sum them up for me or read me like, oh, maybe we could read them together. Maybe Mm -hmm. you could read like, you know, like important parts of it. Um, So that's a little bit about learning and also learning about yourself. Because like I know some people whose partners just did all the research and did everything and then presented it with them and said, okay, this is what we're doing. Just sign on the dotted line. I wouldn't have been, that's not me. I'm a little bit of a control freak. So I might say I wanted my husband to do everything, but I would have been the one going down the rabbit hole of Google at the time when there wasn't that much out there, you know? So who are you and who are they? And that's what I mean learning about your marriage. And that helps when you're getting to parenting because I'm still maybe the person who does the deep dive and then presents him with some mm-hmm. of the summaries and stuff. That that sounds very helpful. That would work for me too. <laughs> so <laughs> what you're basically talking about is, you know, for couples to really kind of know who you're dealing with and and be openly communicate about what's needed and then what are ways that someone can be on board in the way that also works for, for both people. Right, and um, it's not really that yeah. hard to go to appointments, even if they're dumb appointments. Right. Yes, yes, definitely go to those appointments for sure. Um, I want to get to the idea of envy here. And um, there is, of course, baby envy. And um, it being uh, Mother's Day approaching, of course, that's got to be a tough holiday for people who are um, don't yet have their child. 
what what are your thoughts on how on on how the envy plays out and how to how to deal with it? Yeah, so like now in particular, I mean, envy is for everyone. I don't know even if you're seeing this from the male perspective, but from the female perspective, it's at an all-time high. Oh, you know, the married people are like, what are you single people complaining about? You have, you ran out of Netflix shows, you know, like what, what's your, what do you, I have kids at home. And then the fertility people are like, what are you, um, you know, the single people might be like, what are you complaining about? You have at least someone to quarantine with. And then the fertility people are looking at everybody and being like, I would kill to be with kids right now, you know? So that's right. So right. We're all stuck on this social media, um, social media bubble, like not bubble. We're all stuck on social media and the fishbowl looking at it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so it's definitely not hard for fertility people right now. And then with mother's day coming up, it's just like, Oh my God, I'm going to have to see a tribute to every single mother while I'm my fertility treatment might've been suspended or it might be restarting. And, you know, I've been furloughed, I have no money and I have no kids, you know, so it's it's tough, tough for everyone, especially people who want children and can't have them during this time. Mm-hmm. I think the people who don't want children are really kind of gleeful and happy and laughing at all of us parents. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but in general, I mean, I've had moments where like I stepped on the subway in New York City back when you could still walk on the subway and I walked on the subway and um, the whole, a homeless woman got on and she was like, I'm hungry. I'm homeless and I'm pregnant. And I said to my friend, really like her too. Oh my God, I can't. And I know my friend thought I was like the most awful person in the world. Like I was making fun of the homeless person. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't making fun of her. It was just like, you no, know, wherever you go, you're, confronted with every, it feels like everyone else is being pregnant besides you mm-hmm. and it feels really unfair that something that you want and you might have tried so hard for you might have spent so much money on you might have planned your whole life around this one event and it feels elusive and it's out of your reach and you can't have it um and you know that's where accept your feelings and feel your feelings really comes from because these are not baby envy. Pregnancy envy is not an acceptable feeling. It's not, um, it's not sanctioned in society. It wasn't even sanctioned. That's kind of what touched off. I think that was my first column in the New York times was like, my husband was like, why can't you be happy for her? It's not like her pregnancy takes away from your pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And I said, uh, I can't, I'm not happy for her. Like, I'm just not sorry. I'm not that good a person. And, um, I see, you know, that's one of the reasons, that's one of the inspirations that made me decide to write this book because originally I thought I was going to write a memoir about my own experiences. And then I kind of kept seeing, you know, when I started, there was no Facebook groups devoted to every level of pregnancy, you know, like infertile, endometriosis, repeat miscarriage, Jonah Riggs, like now you can find, um, a dedicated Facebook group for every particular diagnosis. But back in 2011 and 12, there was definitely nothing like that. But as I've been watching the groups over the years, it's the biggest question around. Like my best friend wants me to throw her a shower and she's mad at me that I can't do it. My my sister-in-law just keeps flaunting her pregnancy in my face. My mother or mother-in-law won't leave me alone. And I don't want to tell her that we're going through fertility treatment. So this whole idea of like the social aspect of infertility, like how do you deal with baby envy? And I say in my book, like if you think going to all these parties, baby showers, bachelorette parties, weddings, brises, bar mitzvahs, if you think it's going to make you a better person then go, but like I went to all these things and it didn't make me a better person. And you know, that's where you need to accept that this is an ugly emotion. These are mean thoughts. I have mm-hmm. a therapist um, in that chapter who t- she calls them mean thoughts. And, you know, she tells her patients, why should you be happy for her? I wouldn't be happy for her if she was pregnant and I wasn't. You don't have to be happy for her. So that's like such a relief to hear. Right. And right. I always say act happy and do voodoo in private. <laughs> That's good. So uh, no yeah. one, 
Yeah. Look, I want to tell you something. My bro- my sister, after my fourth miscarriage, which was like so devastating because it was with a donor egg and it was supposed to be my guarantee for a baby. It was mm-hmm. supposed to be my slam dunk. So mm-hmm. the level of my devastation. I mean, I went from New York to Los Angeles and I cried for the whole five and a half hour flight in the window. Mm-hmm. Just to give you a visual. Mm-hmm. My sister had just told me she was pregnant. And my younger sister, and she had had two miscarriages before, so it's not like she didn't deserve it, right? Mm -hmm. My sister had just told me she was pregnant, and my brother told me he was expecting his fifth kid. Oh, gosh. So, and I just was like, oh, my God, the thing that was supposed to work, like, you're never going to be a mother. And, you know, my sister told me on the phone, and I said, oh, I'm so happy for you. And then she started describing her pregnancy symptoms, like, oh, I'm a little depressed. And I was like, hmm, I was thinking like, oh, I was lying when I said I was having for years. So please don't go on and on about this. Like, I can't be your big sister right now. Right. I don't have it in me. And I think when you're going through infertility and people say, oh, why can't you be happy for her? And you can just say, I don't have any happiness in me right now. Like, I just don't have it. And I'm sorry. And you know, I was a, I've been a great big sister to my sister, my younger sister, but I couldn't then. And I, that's when I hopped on the plane. Like, I'm just like, I can't. And I don't even think that we had the discussion about it. I think my mother said something to me, like I should really be more involved. And I just kind of blew her off because I was like, I can't, like, I'm sure I'm going to love my, that baby when it comes, right. but it's just too much for me to handle. And that's like, for parenting and infertility, you got to take care of yourself and what you can handle and not listen to like what emotions you're supposed to have. And it's okay to be upset about someone else's pregnancy and sadness for yourself. And, you know, maybe you don't go through nine months of it. Maybe you just deal with it and you know, and like you say to yourself, okay, I can't, I can't be there the way I want to be there. And I even have a letter in the book, like dear pregnant girlfriend, Mm. you know, like, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. I know we've been through everything together. This is too much for me. And I'm sorry about it. Yeah. And being kind to yourself, like you're saying, like being human, like that's the most human. It's just so human. Like I don't have happiness in me right now. I mean, I feel so thank you for saying that for everyone who this applies to who's listening and that it's normalizing the sadness, the grief, the loss, the depression, the anger. Um, It's real. And it's, 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 you know, how can you not feel that way? Um, and I get it from the other side because, you know, when I was finally pregnant and it stuck, I got the hormonal feeling of wanting to share it with the universe and wanting, I get the other side, like mm-hmm. wanting to share it with the universe and wanting to be, um, want everybody to be in this joyous part with you. Right. Um, you know, one of my best friends that I've known since growing up, um, well, I don't even remember, I don't know where I was in the journey, but she called me one day and she just said, listen, I want you to know that um, I want you to know that I'm expecting, and this was also her fifth child. She said, I want you to know that I'm expecting. You don't have to be happy for me. I just needed to, to let you know. And I was cry- I still cry when I think about it because that was like the nicest thing that anyone has ever said to me. Like, mm-hmm. I don't need you to be happy for me. I'm just telling you. And I mm-hmm. said, thanks. Just took all the pressure off, right? Yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah. Okay, I have... I have before we're we're almost to the parent footprint moment question, but I have one more question first to ask you because it's, it's led up to this, which is, so how do you suggest people talk to people who are dealing with infertility, right? You've been, you're on both sides. You're the expert. Like how should they view that person, treat that person, talk to that person? You know, look, not everybody's me and I can't say what I needed is what everybody else needed. So I think if you suspect your friend's going through infertility, um, you can say, you know, are you having, like, I'm here for you if you want to talk about it. And you can also say, um, you know, do you want to talk about it? And they could say no. And you can also say, or if you know they're going through something, you can just say, um, I'm here for you. Do you want me to ask you about it? Or do you want to just bring it up when you want to bring it up? Because people are different. You know, some people might get offended if you don't ask. And some, like for me, my mantra was, I'll tell you when there's something to tell you. And like, don't ask if I'm pregnant. And I, and I, even though I was writing about it for the New York Times, like, don't, I, I didn't tell anybody when was my retrieval, when was my transfer, because the word, the last thing I wanted was like, okay, 
I had a failed transfer in IVF and then I have to tell 10 people waiting by the phone. Totally. But other people are different. Other people want their mom on board and want to know every up and down. So I think, you know, and it's the same thing with probably anything. Like, I'm here for you. How Mm -hmm. can I help you? What do you need? Do you want to talk about it? Do you not want to talk about it? Mm -hmm. And then in terms of the pregnancy announcement, I always um, feel like email is definitely the best way. So you don't have to um, have an in-person or force a kind of reaction. Like, I get it. I'm pregnant. I just want you to know. Let me know how involved you want to be in this journey. Um, I hope it will happen for you to for you soon as well. Right, right. Kind of. So it's like a lot of I'm hearing for neutral, not high emotion, and also with uh, knowing that everyone will will handle it differently. Will want to talk differently, and giving them the opportunity to kind of own and 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 be in charge of that. I mean, maybe, right, maybe more emotion, you know, depending on your friendship, like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. That sucks. It's so terrible. Tell me, um, tell me what I can do. Obviously don't, don't, don't talk about adoption. Don't talk about your friends, your miracle friends who got pregnancy after eating pineapple. Don't talk about this amazing rabbi or cab or like shaman or a doctor, you know, like, don't offer advice because yep. someone going through infertility likely has heard it or will hear it all. Yep. Got it. Okay, Amy, it's time for the parent footprint moment question. Tell us about a time when you became aware of yourself as an individual or a parent and that new awareness had a positive impact on your child. So I've been thinking about this and Um, I always thought, I wasn't sure I was going to have children because I didn't have great parenting from my parents. Um, and when I started going through infertility and I started having miscarriages and I was like, should I continue with this journey or not continue? A part of me said, you know, I want to be a parent because I don't want to be stuck in my own past, like just dealing with my own parenting issues. I feel like the only way to get over my past and to get over everything is to have my own family. Cause otherwise I'll just be like always thinking about my parents and things like that. Mm-hmm. And I also like wanted to know, like I wanted to kind of be put in my parents' shoes, like, Oh, what were they thinking? What were they going through? And I can't really do that unless I'm a parent myself. And I, I was hoping I was hoping for a boy because um, I thought a girl would bring up too much like mothering issues for me mm-hmm. of my own mother. But and I thought that that would send me straight back into therapy, like just being a parent and then realizing like, oh, my God, how could my parents have treated me this way? Um, but like, I think it was one day my daughter was like, two and a half and she was you know pinching my cheeks and saying I love you mommy and I just realized like I I don't I know what it's like to be a mom Mm -hmm. but I don't but I can't go back there like I don't go back and be like oh my god how did my mother treat me you know how did my mother do her laissez-faire parenting um when she has this beautiful butterball inside of her you know like mm-hmm. I couldn't go back in time and I just realized like I'm never I thought you know having a daughter would repair my past maybe in a certain way or like give me a greater understanding into my own childhood but I don't like I don't um when my daughter looks at me and is like, I love you, mommy, and she kisses me, I don't know. I thought that would give me an understanding of, like, how it feels for me to say that to my mother or would bring up some loss. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it hasn't. Um, it hasn't made me go back there. And it hasn't made me understand what it's like to have that kind of parents. So the way that I think it affects my parenting is, it's kind of like a clean slate, like all the things that I thought that I would bring, I thought I would bring up all these issues 
of my own mother and having mother issues. And I don't, I just have this like blank slate. Like I still kind of don't know. I don't know what it's like to have, you know, my daughter's a a single child. I don't know what it's like to have every, your parents at your beck and call and to know when my daughter was a baby and one of my best friends had met her at like seven, I don't know, maybe seven or eight months. And she said, Oh my God, you could tell this kid knows she's loved, which is so beautiful. And you know, my daughter is super loved. Maybe she's spoiled, but she's totally loved. Yeah. And, um, yeah, that's so key. That's so key. You know, I just reflecting on what you're saying, a huge part of parent footprint is awareness of where we came from so we could be purposeful about how we parent. And you just embodied that, right? So you're very aware of what your childhood was like and what you wanted to be different. And you thought your child would bring you a certain kind of repair so you can look back. But I think it's it, it sounds like she's brought you a different kind of repair that it's almost like you can now be present and move forward because you know how to show love and be loved. Right. Mm-hmm. And we call, I mean, my husband said to me like about my mother, she said, you know, he just said, let's like, I kind of think of her as Grammy, you know, she's a wonderful grandmother and she's repaired um, through that. And my relationship to her, I, I just call her Grammy. You know, I don't think about the rest of the stuff. She's a wonderful grandmother to my daughter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that long, that long moment. Those are moments of a lifetime, really encapsulated there. And uh, everyone, check out Amy's book. Um, honest, obviously, she is a very, not only wise, uh, she is funny. She says it like it is. That's what her book is being talked about, how well-researched it is, how humorous it is, and that she's a straight shooter, as you could tell. And she's been there. Um, and she's trying to get the word out. So please share this book with everyone you know who could benefit from it. And let's all try to get Amy in uh, virtual high school and college classrooms at this point as soon as possible. Um, Amy, tell everyone where they can find your book, your writings, and all of the good stuff that you're doing. So my website is the Trying Game and Fertility book. And um, if you're going to order it, um, Amazon is great for the Kindle or the Audible, but they might have delays in shipping. So I'd get it at bookshop.org or maybe even at Barnes and Noble to, you know, support on Amazon things. And all my writing is at um, my website. Awesome. Amy, thank you for the conversation today and spreading the word and talking about such a difficult topic um, that we need to be talking about. Thank Thank you. Thank you so much. All right, everyone. That's it for our show for today. You know where to find us at www.parentfootprint.com. Tell people about the show. Subscribe. Spread the word. Help us with our mission to create a more loving and compassionate world, one parent and one child at a time. Be the person you want your child to become. And as always, ask yourself the guiding question, what footprint do you want to leave?